0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. First, our New Testament reading, Matthew 8, 23-27. In this being the Word of God, uh, out of reverence for it, would you stand? Afterwards, uh, we will say this, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, if you please respond by saying, thanks be to God. So Matthew eight, twenty-three to twenty seven. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading will be in Jonah. Jonah 1, 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men who were exceedingly afraid said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I knew, know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have
1: Good to be with you here this morning. I'm glad to be here at Trinity Church. As uh, everyone has said, my name is Chase, and I'm one of the pastors up at the Well Church in Boulder. Uh, I was actually blessed with a sabbatical this summer, and I got to visit Trinity Church back in June. Uh, kind of made a surprise visit, didn't let Brian know. And uh, you guys prayed for us during that service, and I just was delighted by that providence and, and uh, was, was very blessed by that. So we're big fans, uh, speaking on behalf of the pastors at the Well Church, we're big fans of what God is doing at this church And uh, very excited uh, to be here. Um, Anytime I fill a pulpit uh, for a friend or or at another church, I enjoy going to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is rich uh, and full of great connections to Christ. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. If you can make your way to Jonah 1, if you haven't already, that's what we just read. The story of Jonah and the fish is probably familiar to many of you. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've probably heard of Jonah and the whale or something like that. And so the story of Jonah and the fish is actually very uh, fascinating. Jonah itself, just to kind of lay the context, is in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic book, and it's, uh, it's actually narrative as well. And so you have the blessing of both prophecy, some poetry dropped in, a prayer, and narrative. And so it's all combined, and if you were to sit down and read it, it should take you hopefully not more than 15 minutes. And so you could do that today, and you say you read a book of the Bible, which would be wonderful. Uh, but we're just going to be looking at chapter 1 this morning. And what we're going to be discovering about Jonah, who is the reluctant prophet, is that uh, we all do things that separate us from God in a variety of ways, and we tend to relate to God in several ways. So we're going to talk about how we relate to God, and apart from knowing God's grace and mercy, we tend to spend our lives trying to control God, trying to manipulate God into doing things for us. We either run away from Him, attempting to secure independence from Him, or we can try to obey God by getting in good graces and justifying ourselves before Him. But Jonah not only shows our sinful tendencies, he also provides a foreshadow of Jesus. So what we see in these first few verses is that Jonah is called by God to arise and go to Nineveh, to call out against that great city. Why? Because the evil of that great city has risen up to God. You see, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were a brutal people, known for their torturous ways. They did not follow God's law. In fact, they had attacked God's people. And so the Assyrians, and Nineveh particularly, which would have been the encapsulation of the Assyrian culture and the enemy of God's people, uh, would have been people that Jonah would have known about and wanted nothing to do with because they were his enemies. And so we see here uh, in these first few verses that God is calling him to go to Nineveh and to preach the good news of God's ways there. We actually see, if you'll look at Jonah 4, 1 through 3, I'm going to read that real quick, we actually see what was Jonah's reluctance based on, why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because on the one hand, you would look at the Assyrian Empire and you would think, well, I wouldn't want to go there because they're going to murder me. Right? I don't want to go to Nineveh. If I go there and preach this message, they'll kill me. But that wasn't it. Look at Jonah 4, 1 through 3. It says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why was he angry? Because when he actually obeyed God, I'm giving you kind of the whole story, giving you the end, but we're only focusing on one this morning. He went and preached the gospel, the good news of God's mercy and lordship over everything. He preached repentance against them, and they did repent. And God showed mercy to them. And Jonah was angry. Why? And he prayed to the Lord and said this, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live, so what is the reason Jonah didn't want to go to uh, to Nineveh? It's because he knew that God would show mercy. He didn't want his enemies to receive mercy. That's why he didn't want to go. He had become hardened towards God's mercy towards people, and it's easy to become this way in a world where we see evil. We can become hardened towards people. Okay. He thinks he, uh, these people are not deserving of God's mercy, uh, that, that they don't deserve it. And so Jonah goes to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is essentially the opposite direction of Nineveh. That's what you need to know. So God says, arise and go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah say? He goes down to Joppa, down to a boat, down in the bottom of the boat, then down into the water. He wants to go in the complete opposite direction of God's call on his life. So he's being called to go to an event, arise and go up, and he goes to the exact opposite direction. And what does God do? When Jonah flees, he sends a storm. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you feared for your life because of the weather, but I have. When I was eight, we lived in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. And it was an odd season because a hurricane had come a, uh, up on the coast and had made its way in. We lived in just north of Atlanta in a town called Marietta. Uh, beautiful town, and the storm had made its way in inland, um, and the winds were going to be crazy and knock out power and all that kind of stuff. And my dad was away on a business trip, and so me being the oldest kid, I was around eight or nine at the time, uh, felt a certain responsibility, and so my younger brother and my younger sister, we go down to the basement of the home along with the dog, and, and dogs have this kind of weird instinct about them. When a storm comes, they tend to know, and the dog is whimpering in the cage. My brother and sister are crying. My mom's down there with us. And we're hiding in the basement overnight as the winds whip against our house and we hear trees snapping outside. Being in a storm can be quite terrifying and this is what it would have been like on the boat. They were terrified. The, fail- the sailors were facing something not of this world. They were afraid. This tempest was shaking them to the core. And God is responding directly to Jonah's flight. You see, Jonah thinks he's getting away with it. He thinks he's good. He's fled, he's gone down, he's gone in the opposite direction. He thinks he can escape the presence of God, but that's not how it works, is it? You don't escape the presence of God by just getting on a boat and doing the opposite of what he says. So Yahweh, the Lord, sends a great tempest, a great wind upon the sea. He hurls it, it says. The storm is so intense that the Bible uses language in in such a way that the ship itself takes on a type of personality. Where it uses words like the ship itself was threatening to break. Does that make sense? So so it's using anthropomorphic language to describe the boat as if it itself wanted to break and fall into the sea. If you've ever been on a boat in a storm like this, you may have an ear for it. You hear the boat creaking, but the creaking isn't like the squeaky door that needs WD-40 in your house. The creaking is the tension of something about to snap. It's terrifying. You've got this boat rocking, rocking, yawing, pitching, slamming in the waves, the waves enveloping the boat, coming over the edge. The situation is dire, and they were afraid. These guys, these mariners, these sailors, these professionals are panicking. These would have been seasoned men who were familiar with storms, and so they knew exactly what was going on, typically, but this was no normal storm. There's something greater going on. So what these mariners are experiencing is something that is unlike your normal storm. God is sending this storm. There's something greater going on here. And, and I just want you to imagine if you are on a flight and all of a sudden the captain got on the intercom and he starts crying out to God on the intercom of a flight, you know things have gone wrong, right? This is not a good situation. They're in full crisis mode. They're giving up on normal operations to save a ship. They're throwing things overboard. They're panicking. They're desperate for deliverance. And I think we all have found ourselves in different storms in our life that we can relate to like this, where things just keep happening to us that make us go, what is going on? The waves keep hitting us one after another. Troubles keep piling up against us, and we have to pay attention and go, God, what are you doing? Because I don't get it. I do not understand. What should I do? The hits keep coming one after another, and you enter panic mode. You become desperate for deliverance, searching for anything to bring peace. The sailors are facing a great difficulty, a literal storm, which in this case had been sent by Yahweh to interrupt their journey, to interrupt Jonah's flight. Yahweh hurled this storm to call Jonah back to his mission. He's going to get his man, and this storm is actually a merciful expression of God's love. You have to imagine a fisherman casting a line out to sea to get what he wants, to get that fish, and this is what Yahweh is doing with his wayward prophet now the sailors respond to the storm in verse 5 and doing two primary things first they call out to their gods they call out to their gods for mercy and deliverance these sailors would have worshiped a variety of gods and so they were pagans and so they knew all sorts of gods they would have cried out to anyone and everyone that could have helped they had the God of sailors the God of grain the God of the weather the God of the Sun the God of the sea And these sailors are not Hebrew people. They were pagans. They would have been calling out to their idols anything, any god that could abate this storm. The second thing they start doing is they start throwing things overboard. They're working for deliverance by any means possible. They're trying to lighten the load. Because in the storms and the waves, a heavy boat's going to go up and down more severely. They're trying to throw cargo off so the ship doesn't become subsumed by the waves. The author of Jonah actually uses poetic language here. He's trying, he's very creative in that way. He's using the same word hurl that was used when God hurled a storm upon them. They are hurling cargo into the sea. We have a battle going on. God hurls a storm at the sailors and they in turn hurl cargo into the sea. They're fighting God. And we know who wins if we start fighting God. They're seeking to pacify God's justice through their own efforts. And apart from Christ, we tend to respond in one of these two ways. We either look to what we worship, or we try to fix things ourselves. We look to the things that our nationality, our ethnicity, our traditions, our personality tell us we should derive deliverance through, and we cry out to false gods for help. Or we double our efforts to save ourselves. We try harder. We try to maintain a positive spirit. Try to turn... Lemons and a lemonade, noble and oftentimes a useful attitude, but futile when God is beckoning you to himself. When God is calling us to himself for salvation, nothing else will do. We can do these sequentially, we can do these at the same time, but when we are suffering, people look for deliverance from whatever false gods they worship, and they tend to try, to, try harder to make things better. The sailors are desperate for deliverance. And in order to find salvation, we must realize our desperate situation ourselves when we just look to our own gods and to ourselves to save ourselves. See, storms invite us to recognize the God over the storms and worship him, that we might find hope and deliverance through the ultimate storm of sin, Satan, and death. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. If you know Christ, do you know what this means. You have learned in the midst of the storm to love God and appreciate the sovereignty of God because you know that in the storm, it is an opportunity to draw closer to Christ, to know the love of the Father, to enjoy God more. And maybe hard to see it in the midst of it, but if you are a Christian, you know this love. So what happens? This captain comes upon Jonah, asleep in the bowels of the ship. The language used here in the Hebrew text is the type of sleep, not that it's like a very restful sleep. It's the type of sleep you sleep when you're trying to escape the troubles of life. He's trying to ignore reality. It's the sleep of someone who drank too much to avoid anxiety. Or it's, or it's akin to a business owner fleeing the country when his company's going bankrupt to take a vacation. He's trying to avoid reality that God is coming for him. While everyone fears for his life, he himself is asleep. Which just epitomizes his utter disregard and his utter lack of love for other people. And what does the captain say to him? This is incredible. The captain says to him in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Pay attention. Arise and call out to your God. This captain comes upon Jonah in the bottom of the boat. And he uses the exact same command that God used in verse 2. I'll rise and call out. I'll rise and call out. Jonah is awakened by the same call that God had already issued upon his life from this pagan sailor in the bottom of a boat. You can imagine the terror. Oh no, he found me. Right? Now it is not Jonah the prophet telling pagan sailors to arise and call out to Yahweh. It is the pagan who is doing to Jonah exactly what he should have been doing to them. It is the pagan sailor that is prophesying repentance and worship to Jonah. The irony. The pagan captain is doing exactly what Jonah was supposed to be doing in Nineveh. You know things are a mess when the pagans have more sense of what we should do in desperate situations than the men of God. So they're all together and they cast lots, trying to figure out what's going on. Think like die being cast or, or straws being drawn to determine who it is that is causing this trouble. And Jonah wins the lottery, or in this case he loses it, right? The sailors turn on him. And you can almost hear them with the storms raging, with the boat rocking. The sailors come to him and start bombarding him with questions. It's fallen to you. Who are you and what are you doing here? Where are you from? Who are your people? What's going on? All of these questions that they ask him, get to who he worships. Who is your God? Because this is the reality. They demand to know who he worships because who you worship determines your identity. We all worship someone or something, and what we worship determines who we are and what we do. What we worship defines us. We can worship any number of things apart from the living God in sinful ways. For many of us as Americans, we tend to worship uh, uh, consumeristic comfort, the conveniences of life. And when this comfort becomes a God in our life, when we worship comfort, comfort, then any suffering that would impede our comfort becomes a spiritual attack on us. Anything that gets in our way becomes a spiritual attack. Or if you're like in the general culture of our day, if you worship the God of sexual liberty, then anything that would threaten that freedom becomes an existential threat to your identity. So much so that you're willing to shed blood over it. This is what the sailors are trying to get after in Jonah. What is Jonah about? Who does he worship? And so Jonah responds. What does he respond? He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And you can just imagine his voice on the last part. Who made the sea and the dry land? You can almost hear him trailing off here in the text. As if he's reluctant to share with them the reality about who Yahweh is. The God of the sea and the dry land. Who made everything. And so the sailors reply with horror, it's you. Your God did this. They know. They know. They say, what have you done? They know he's fleeing from Yahweh. He's already told them as much. Your God made everything, the very sea, and now we're about to die because of it. Look at this. Even in Jonah's reluctance to preach the fear and worship of Yahweh, the Lord, and his own disbelief in it. Because right now, does it seem like Jonah fears God? It doesn't. But even in this, the sailors repent. The sailors know that he is fleeing God because he told them. Now they understand where their fear and worship should be directed. It shouldn't be directed at these false gods that they know. But Jonah didn't fear the Lord. He doesn't worship the Lord because he feared the Ninevites. And he feared God's mercy over them. Jonah is more afraid of people and their potential forgiveness and the possibility that evil people could receive mercy then he is afraid of God himself. He is afraid that God really is merciful. So he's fled. And On the other, other hand, the sailors realize that Yahweh is the one to be feared and worshipped. This is the focal point of this passage. That while Jonah should fear God, he doesn't. And the sailors, who shouldn't fear God, do. The person who says he belongs to God and God's people doesn't actually worship God. And the sailors who have no connection with God's covenant people, they are not Hebrew, you might say they're not the church-going crowd, are the ones who fear God. The tables have been turned. That the people of God who don't fear God, that they claim to worship, all the pagans do. Martin Luther put it this way. The curse of a godless man Can sound more pleasant in God's ears than the hallelujah of the pious. Church going Jonah claims to be one of God's people, but the only people in the story who actually worship God are the pagans who turn to God. God help us from this kind of blindness. In their limited knowledge of God, in their crying out to false gods, immediately they turn to the living God, to Yahweh, probably with sailors' curses still on their lips crying out for deliverance. And that's more pleasing to God than Jonah's feeble gospel presentation where he declares who he supposedly worships. If you could look at the text, I want to walk you through something. Typically I'd have a slide up that would help you, but I'm going to, I'm going to try something, okay? And I want to prove this from the text, why this is the central focus of the passage. What we have here, and if you haven't heard this word, I'm going to use a a big word, seminary word that you can forget as soon as I say it, it's called a chiasm. And so if you ever want to go to a Bible study with other Christians and you want to impress them, you say, I wonder if there's a chiastic structure in this text, and then all of them will roll their eyes at you, right? Because nobody enjoys that person at a Bible study. My point is, there's a structure to this text. There's a structure, and I want to point it out to you, okay? So you're going to open the Bible, and I want you to open to Jonah 1, we're going to look through 4 through 16, and I need you to use two fingers. You can maybe do this I'm gonna how the text is laid out. Put your finger in four and put your finger in 16. And we're going to work towards the middle. In four it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them but Jonah had got down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep now look at 15 and 16 so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased its raging then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows there's there's some overlap in language in verse 4 and 5 Yahweh hurls a wind upon the sea the storm begins the sailors fear and cry out to their gods in verse 15 and 16, the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea. The storm ceases and the sailors fear Yahweh and they make a sacrifice. Five, uh, let's go to 6 and 13 and 14. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps God will give you a thought to us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. 13 and 14. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So in 5 and 6, Jonah sleeps, cry out to your God, we shall not perish, divine sovereignty. 13 and 14, sailors strive for dry land, sailors cry out to Yahweh, let us not perish, divine sovereignty. We're getting closer. Verse 7. They said to one another, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. That's verse 7. The pairing verse is verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Why? I know it is on me because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So we're getting closer. We're getting to the central verses. In verse 8, the sailors questioned Jonah. In verse 11, the sailors question Jonah again. And then in verse 9, Jonah admits, I fear the Lord, which he doesn't. And then in verse 10, the sailors fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the central piece of this passage. The author of this text, divinely inspired by the living God, has structured it in such a way which to point to you and I that it is about worship. Because that's what fear is about. Jonah doesn't actually worship the living God. The sailors do. Jonah was supposed to go teach the Ninevites how to worship the living God. And he doesn't. But God's going to use him anyways. And he teaches these pagans how to worship God. What we see here is that what you fear and what you worship determines your identity. Even at Jonah's inept attempt, weak attempt at a gospel presentation... I mean, can you imagine if you were trained, if you grew up in like a campus ministry in college, and they said, I want you to go share the gospel this way. I serve God, I fear him, the God of the land and the sea. Like, it's a pretty weak effort on Jonah's part, right? He's trying to confess, but it's not even a good enough. But they, because of their great fear, turn to the living God. God is going to use his prophet. So the question is, if the central feature of this text is about worship and about fear, the question for you and I is, do we worship and fear God? his love, his mercy, his wrath, or do we fear and worship other things and our own righteousness? This plays out in your relationships with other people, your commitments to others, how you treat other people, how you fulfill the law of God in your life. Do you worship your own comfort or do you sacrifice for others because you worship the living God? If you worship comfort, then money and safety and convenience and leisure and pleasure are all going to be the things that determine your identity. And people become disposable. Relationships become disposable. Everything else will submit to the God of comfort in your life. You will sacrifice people and mission and belonging to a local church for comfort. But if you worship God, the living God, Yahweh, your identity is in God. And all of a sudden, your life flows out of that. Your life gets reordered and rearranged, reprioritized. You will obey God in his ways. So how do the sailors respond? They ask, what should we do? And isn't this what most of us do in times of distress? What do I do? Just someone tell me what to do. Please, someone tell me what to do. Google, tell me how to solve this problem. Pastor, tell me what to do. Friend, mom, dad, anyone, give me an answer. How do I solve this problem? What do we do? And Jonah provides them with an answer. They have to throw him into the sea. Hurl him into the sea of course now this is crazy right I mean put yourself in the sailor's position you find a guy who's responsible for the storm and he goes you have to throw me into the water what that's crazy what we see in chapter 4 though of Jonah is that Jonah has already hinted at that he'd rather die than the Ninevites receive mercy and this is just another attempt that Jonah would rather die then go fulfill God's mission to preach mercy to pagans. Jonah would rather be tossed in the waters, thrown to the bottom of the sea. He's almost suicidal to avoid this mission of God, this commission of God on his life. Arise and call. If you will throw me into the sea, then I can finally be rid of it. This arise and call business that I don't want to do. That's what Jonah's thinking. He's so eager to escape. There in the ocean, he could finally escape the Ninevites and God's mercy to them. See, in order for the wrath of God against Jonah to be satiated and be still, there would have to be justice. We in our day, we think running away from God is cute. We like the idea of wandering. Wandering. and bolder. this is very popular. Not all who wander are lost, right? Bumper stickers everywhere. But many are not wandering. They're running. We're avoiding God. And by avoiding deciding on his lordship, his authority over the world and our lives... We're avoiding him, and we earn our own judgment in the end. We would rather wonder instead of worship, and that's a problem. We would rather stick to our master in slavery than be free to be with God in the desert. We'd rather be in Egypt than with God in the desert. We avoid God by avoiding worshiping with God's people and making commitments relationally to local churches. We wander from church to church because, at least in our wandering through life, then we have an excuse when things don't work out. It's easier to excuse our lack of connection if we just keep wandering through life than if we settle down and decide Jesus is Lord. He's worthy of worship, and I will worship with God's people. This is not something that God celebrates, this wandering. Our wandering from God is more akin to running from Him, and it's just sin. It's a sinful attitude. It's a sinful disposition, and it's the same sin that Jonah had committed. Here's what I to do. I want to look at Matthew 8. If you'll turn there, Matthew 8:23. This is why I love preaching the Old Testament, because when we read the Gospels, all of a sudden they come alive in, in new ways. Matthew 8:23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So we've got Jesus on a boat, right? Jesus gets on a boat, his disciples follow him. And behold, there arose what? A great storm on the sea. So that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But where was Jesus? He was asleep. And they went and woke him up. What are they crying out for? Deliverance. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. The same cry of the sailors. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and what does he do do there? He rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus and his disciples find themselves in a similar situation, and Jesus doesn't do this kind of thing on accident. When you read the New Testament, these are very real connections to the Old Testament. And in this case, however, Jesus sleeps because he knows who he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. His friends on the boat wake him up asking him a similar question. What do we do? Jesus, what do we do? Save us. Deliver us. Desperate for deliverance. And in this case, it is Jesus himself being God himself that stills the storm. He will serve as the sacrifice and yet be the very God who can calm the storm himself. Both God and man. God is on the boat with them. He stills the storm. And what do they do in response? The same thing the sailors did. They worship. They fear. See, God is not just your friend. He is the ruler and maker of everything, deserving of all worship. God is in charge of the storms. He can quiet the storms. And in this case, he would become the sacrifice that we need to calm the storm of sin, Satan, and death. These sailors, see, they have the same response. If we go back to Jonah, they have the same response to the sacrifice that we would have. Nope, not going to kill a dude to stop a storm, right? So what do they do? They want to get Jonah back to shore. Well, he's God of sea and land, so we're going to go to the land. We're going to get you back to land, and then all this mess can be cleaned up because obviously you should have been on land. They're trying to work harder to get Jonah back to shore. Now I know the living God. Now I'm just going to do his ways, and that will make me good with him. They're trying to avoid the sacrifice, the justice. If we just try harder to obey God, then we'll just be okay. If we put Jonah back on the land, that way he can't run from God anymore, then we'll be good, right? But try as they might, they cannot make it back to land. And this is the third way we try to solve the storms of life. First, we worship false gods. Second, we try to fix it ourselves. And third, we think that if we once we discover God's ways, if we just obey hard enough, then we'll be good enough to receive God's mercy. We try to obey God harder. We think if we just do right by God, just stop sinning, just clean ourselves up, then he will show mercy to us. It's not how it works. It is God who shows mercy. God is in charge of mercy. They row harder, and what does the sea do? It grows worse. It gets even harder to row. And isn't this true when we've bought into the idea that good things happen to good people? And all of a sudden, a crisis comes. And that world view gets shattered real quick. This is the basic moralistic framework that our culture teaches is karma. This is also what you'll get From some pulpits where if you just do the right things, good things will happen to you. Be nice and good things will come your way. It's not the message of Christianity. The sailors discover, as we need to discover, that they need a sacrifice. Because God is not to be trifled with. The sailors respond with the original hope that God had for the people of Nineveh. They cry out to God for mercy and they worship him. They hurl Jonah into the sea. The final hurl in this narrative. And the sea was stilled. They were trying alternative means of salvation, of deliverance. Throwing cargo over, worshiping false gods. But they needed to make a sacrifice. A man needed to die. And at the resolution of the storm, what do they do? They fear God, Yahweh, and they worship him. They commit themselves to God. And in doing so, the prophet has fulfilled his mission. (laughs) The pagans repent and come to God. They worship Yahweh. After we woke up in Atlanta the next morning, after we had spent the night in the basement, we woke up to clear blue skies. We walked out, and 100-foot pines had been snapped in half, uprooted many of them, but our home was spared. Uh, I think the gas lines were interrupted. We couldn't cook for days, and the electricity was still off, but we were spared, and we had shelter. And I think when we find storms in our life, that's the kind of hope we long for, that everything is going to be okay, that there is deliverance. Friends, the storms we face in life are opportunities to reevaluate who we worship, what we worship. Do we worship the living God or do we worship something else? They're opportunities to call out to God, to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages, as Charles Spurgeon said. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus has a fine way of words, doesn't he? He's saying your fear or your worship should be directed at God because it is God who is sovereign over your eternal destiny. I think there might be a few places you might be this morning after hearing this text. One, maybe you're like Jonah. Maybe you're running away or wandering, as you might call it. You're running away and you need to come to him, maybe because you've never met him before. But the great news for you is that God does not desire for you to perish. Because one has already perished on your behalf. And that one is Jesus Christ. You're in a storm because you're fleeing from God. But he's not looking for you to be tossed into the sea to quell the storm. He's actually provided a way for you to be reconciled to him through Jesus. See, just as Jonah was tossed into the sea, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried to satisfy the wrath of God towards our sin, our running away from him. The great storm that threatens us is the judgment Of God, which is symbolized in the sea. We are in danger of God's wrath because of our disobedience to his ways. And there needs to be a sacrifice made to assuage his wrath. That sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Just as Jonah was buried in the sea for three days and three nights, Jesus Christ was buried in the grave for three days and three nights. Or perhaps you relate to Jonah in a different way. You have people that you have no interest in being recipients of God's grace and mercy. Maybe they're terrible sinners, complete pagans. Maybe they have harmed you. Maybe you see what they're doing to our cities, to our nation, and you merely wish that God would damn them. You have forgotten the mercy of God. But God is a God abounding in mercy, not only for them, but for you also. He will judge. He will have vengeance. But for now, he is inviting us To have hearts of mercy and love for the lost, the pagan, the great sinners of Nineveh, of Denver, of Boulder. Those who you do not know or do not believe deserve God's mercy. The only way that you have that kind of love for other people, to share the gospel with them, the good news of God's mercy, is to know God's mercy yourself. You must come to the cross of Christ and remember your salvation Or, finally, maybe you're like the sailors, and you're trying all sorts of things to save yourselves. You're crying out to these gods of comfort, convenience, independence, whatever idols you've set up to derive your identity from. You're trying harder to save yourself by alleviating your distress. You're tossing cargo overboard. You're desperate for deliverance. Maybe you even know God, but you're still trying to save yourself by getting back to shore. Just row harder. Try harder. You're white-knuckling your sin. You're trying to stop sinning. Stop doing bad things, and that will save you. But it is God alone who saves. You must come to Christ for mercy. You must find mercy at the cross. It is Jesus Christ who stills the storm with his hand and who meets the demands of salvation for you. And so the invitation for you is if you're in a storm, you come to the one who can save your soul. You may be crying out to gods for deliverance. You may be throwing things overboard to make it better. You can come to Jesus to find deliverance today. Jesus lives today, and he's ready to receive you. He's eager to. No one in here is too far off from the mercy of God. No Ninevite, no Denverite is too far from God. You can turn to God, the living God, but you must give up on your own efforts to save yourself. You must turn away from your sins. That doesn't guarantee that the storms of life won't come, but that in those storms you will know who is sovereign and you will worship rightly. We need churches filled with people who cling to the gospel in this way, who cling to the mast of the gospel on the ship and the storm, who look to Christ alone. A church committed to this good news that God saves sinners and the way he saves sinners is through Jesus Christ alone will be a place of grace, patience, love, mercy, obedience to God's law. They will love our neighbors and repent from the places in their lives where their hearts still believe and behave like Jonah. That kind of church would be a repentant community that cries out for mercy over and over again, knowing that they don't deserve it. Knowing that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can receive mercy. And in a culture like that, in a church like that, pride dies. It just evaporates. Because if a, if a people know that all they are is sinners saved by grace, that they needed mercy and repentance, and that they could do nothing to save themselves, then how could they boast but in anything but the cross? That kind of church, this kind of church, can change the world and can reach the cities of man with the cities of God, with the mercy of God. They can arise and call out against the great cities of our land with the good news of God's mercy. They can reach the most depraved cities in our world because they know that God is a gracious God, merciful, abounding in love. Denver needs churches like this. Denver needs Trinity Church to be a church like this. Let's pray. God, thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for what you accomplished on the cross in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Lord, we worship you this morning. God, I pray that where there are places in our hearts where we are resistant to your word, where we are resistant to your mercy, God, I pray that we would experience your mercy anew this morning. You would inflame our hearts with appreciation in, in worship, res, rebounding to the heavens because of your mercy. God, you are so rich in mercy, so we praise you for that. I pray that this church would be a church that knows what it means to walk in repentance, to obey your ways, to, to worship you because of your sovereignty, your mercy, your justice, God. And that this church would be a light in this city so that other people could come and find mercy. Other people could come and repent, And believe the gospel. And be made alive in you, Christ. God, we pray all of these things because you rule and you reign today. Amen.